Valley, so great to be here. Um, my senior year of college, I went for a run in the hills of Santa Barbara with, with my buddy Andy. And, and, and Andy and I, while we were on this run, we were discussing a problem at our college campus. We were frustrated about the culture of our campus because at a, in our college, guys didn't ask girls out on dates. And we, we thought that was strange and we wanted to change this. So our, our, our game plan, we're about mile two, mile three of the run. And we came up with this game plan of, of starting a dating revolution at our college campus. And, and the plan was we would just walk into the dining commons at our college and we'd start asking girls out on dates and we would hope they'd say yes and we'd hope that it would catch on and other guys would begin to do the same thing and and we were scared and so what we did was we came up with a motto and we we chose to to believe this motto whether it was true or not we said we're going to believe this motto whether it's true or not and it's going to help us get, get the courage we need to ask these ladies out on dates and so our motto was women want to be with us was our motto and we just started kind of chanting it to ourselves to try to believe this thing. We're like, women want to be with us. Women want to be with us. And, and, and we went back to our college campus and we did it. It, it. it worked. We walked into our dining commons. We each asked out a girl that uh, night and had a, had a good, fun date. And then this culture kind of started at our college. Other guys saw what we were doing. They began doing it. And there are people married today as a result of what we did there. And I wrote this book, Date Your Wife, because I want to start a dating revolution in our marriages. I, I wrote this book because I was angry. I, I, I looked around at, at men in marriages, and I was angry about the condition of men in marriages around me, and I wanted to write a book that would, that would help change that. It was, it was about two years ago that I, I did this survey with my wife, Taylor, and I, I said to Taylor, I said, I said, babe, how many marriages can we think of that are good, strong, thriving marriages. The kind of marriage where if you're a single, you see that marriage and you think, man, I want what that couple has. Like, they're happy. There's, there's life there. There's joy there. There's, there's something there. And I, I want that. The kind of marriage that makes other people want to get married. And, and we thought about it for a little while. And together we could come up with two marriages that we thought were these, were these great marriages. And that's a problem because I'm in church world. You know, I was in church world at that time and, and you know, at a big church and just, that's all that we could, all that we could think of. Um, as, I'm, as I'm speaking today, um, married men, you can directly, immediately apply everything that I'm talking about. A single man, you can use this to prepare you for marriage if that's God's call on your life. And, and ladies, you can hear this if you're married. You can hear this as a way to pray for your husband. And single ladies, you can hear this as a way to, to think and pray for the kind of guy that you might want God to, to bring into your life uh, someday. Um, my, my concern is that, is that a lot of um, great dating happens in the, in the dating phase. Dating can feel like, like this mission. Like I know, like my first date with my wife, oh man, it was so fun. I took her on this hike in a, in a redwood forest and her blonde hair and her blue eyes and her blue jeans and her pink shirt. And I just couldn't take my eyes off of her. And all I wanted to do was be with her. All I wanted to do was get more time with her. And our, our whole dating phase felt like this mission. Like I've got to woo her. I've got to get her to like me. I've got to take good care of her. I've got I've to get this thing to the altar. What, what then happens in a lot of our marriages is, is that sense of mission kind of dies out, and it's like the marriage goes into cruise control, and, and men move on to other missions. Typically, their, their career is maybe where most of their passion and creativity and energy goes, and the marriage is just in, in cruise control. I want us to discover, I want us to see, I want us to realize that the real mission really begins in, in marriage, once those vows have, have been spoken. So we get so I'm going to go after you today, men. So I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to say some hard things, but get ready. It's going to ultimately help you, ultimately encourage you. So here, here, here's a concern of mine. 
Have you stopped the average man walking the streets of Silicon Valley and you asked him, what is a man? Like, most men wouldn't be able to answer that question. Most men wouldn't be able to say what a man is or, or what a man does. There's a great deal of confusion about that today in our world. So we're going to start by going after what, what is a man? What is a man called to do? And we, and we see that right away in the Bible. Um, if, if you're new to the Bible, the Bible begins right away with God creating the world and, and he creates a man and he gives his very first man a very clear job description for what he's called to do as a man. So, so we see this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Very, very important passage. God's created the man, and, and, and here's what the verse says. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And I think you can better translate, that, that, that's his job, work it and keep it. It's a twofold job description. I think you can better translate these two words as cultivate and guard. This first man, and we're working with a gardening metaphor here. He's in the Garden of Eden. He's called to cultivate and guard, cultivate. He's called, called to cause life to flourish in that garden, to cultivate it. And he's called to guard. He's called to protect that garden. So when God brought a woman into that man's life, brought a wife into that man's life, he knew what he was supposed to do. Cultivate her. Cause life to flourish. And guard her. Protect her. Take great care of that union. And here's why I can get frustrated. I think what passes for being a good husband or be, being a good man in our, in our world today and many of our churches today is, is so small. Like what passes for being a good husband in, in many churches today is simply this, to be a committed husband. You're a good husband if you're a committed husband. Now that's good. We want committed husbands. We want husbands who are faithful, who are monogamous. That's very good. We want that. But do you know that you can be a very committed husband and still be a, a terrible husband? I mean, your wife could be dying on the inside. You're faithful, you're there, you're monogamous, but you're not taking great care of her. The, the biblical vision of what a man is and how God can use a man and use him in his marriage is, is far, far bigger, and I want us to recover that. So, so men, this is going to depress you first, and then, and then this is going to encourage you, this statement. I, I really think that a man is either the worst thing or the best thing to ever happen to his marriage. I think a man... I think men are called to be the pace setters in their marriage. I think a man can be the worst thing that ever happened to his marriage if, if Jesus doesn't have a hold of his heart. So if Jesus doesn't have a hold of that man's heart, that man's going to be setting a, not a very good pace in that marriage. But, but if Jesus can get a hold of our hearts in fresh new ways, we can be the best thing that's ever happened to our marriage. We can take our marriage in a fresh, new, good, healthy, strong, vibrant direction. I've got two questions for us, men. Here's the first question. Is your wife flourishing under your care? Is your wife flourishing under your care? And, and what would your wife say to that question? How would she answer that? I do this all the time when I'm kind of assessing the character of guys in my church is I look at the face of their wife. What, what's her face look like? Is she flourishing? Is she thriving? Or is she just kind of getting beat up by life and her husband's not doing anything to stop it? Second question, men. You know, in this room, some of us have been married 40, 50 years. Some of us have been married four months. But kind of taking stock of the whole history of your marriage, if you, if you had to sum it up in a sentence, what is the single biggest problem in your marriage? I want you to think about that for a minute. If you had to sum it up in a sentence, what is the single biggest problem in your marriage? Now, men, 
I want you to know that I think we all ought to have the same answer to that question. The answer to that question ought to be me. Me. I really think until we're able to say me and until we're able to own that we are the biggest problem in our marriage, we're not going to see the change happen in our lives and in our marriage that, that needs to happen. Now, I know some of you are listening to me right now and you're like, you don't know my wife, man. <laughs> like, you don't know. You don't know our story. But no, you're right. I don't know your wife. But I'm telling you right now, if you're the man who's already coming up with that excuse, like you're the man who most needs to hear this today. That first um, marriage, you know, started off, started off so well. Um, you know, when we're talking about marriage here, I want to make sure that we're, we're constantly going back to that first marriage, to that first man. There's so much that we can learn there. That first marriage, it started out so well. Like a lot of you, you, you know the scene that God brings this woman to the man. Her name is Eve, and he, and he sees her, and he's so excited. And of course he is, because she's naked, and he's just excited about this thing. And, 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 and the first human words, do you know that the first human words ever spoken in the Bible are spoken by that first man, and they're actually words of poetry. He, he sees his wife, and he says, at last, bone of my bones and, and flesh of my flesh, which this is his way of saying, I'm home. Like, I've been waiting for this. I've been, I've been looking for you. Yes, I'm, I'm so excited about you. And this, and this whole thing starts so well, but then something happens. Uh, a snake slithers into the garden. The, the Bible makes no attempt to explain the existence or origin of, of Satan. Satan just shows up, and he shows up in the Garden of Eden as a serpent, and he, and he comes and he tempts the woman. And what temptation is, is temptation is simply listening to the wrong voice. God's people are called to, to listen to God's voice and follow God's voice. Well, well God's people here, they, they listen to Satan's voice. They listen to the wrong voice, and it leads to disaster. And let's, let's see what happens here. Um, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Uh, Men, this is one of the most damning verses in the whole Bible. Uh, Because we would like to think, man, Adam was out, like he was 50 miles away on the other edge of the garden, just doing something manly, just getting something done, taking great care of his wife. No, where was he? The Bible says he was with her. He was right there. And he he watched this whole thing happen. He just stood there. He didn't protect his wife. He just stood right there and did nothing. Men, this is the original sin of masculinity. And this original sin of masculinity that started with the first husband is, has carried its way into our lives today. The original sin of masculinity is passivity. He, he, he was a passive man. He didn't do anything. And I want to encourage you by this, men. Um, when, when we're talking about our, our failures as men and our failures as husbands, and I have so many of those, um, this isn't a problem that started a generation ago. This is a problem that started with the very first man. It's a problem that started with, with the very first husband. And we've got, we got to put our, our minds a, around that. Um, I, I want you to see, like, the, here's the worst thing that could happen here. The worst thing that could happen here is some guys leave with some tips. Hey, I got some good tips on, on how to date my wife. I don't want to give you tips today. I want to tell you that you are in a battle. Do you know that Satan hates you? Men, Satan hates you. Satan hates your marriage and he wants to destroy it. What is the first thing that Satan went after, that Satan attacked? It was a marriage. He went after that thing. 
So I want you to understand that what we're talking about here is a life and death battle. You have this mission on your hands to date your wife and take great care of your wife in a world where that is not happening. You got a mission. I want you to leave empowered to, to carry out this mission. And I, and I want you to know, I don't think God can really use you in a powerful way as a husband until, until you've been broken. I, I'd say that I was a fairly good husband first couple years of marriage, man. But last couple years, after God took me through a season where he just broke me in half, put me in a season where I was, I was unemployed. My wife was six weeks away from having our, our third son, couldn't, didn't have medical insurance, had, had been radically betrayed by some people. It was just a mess. It wasn't until I got to a place of just being absolutely broken and realizing, man, I don't have what it takes to do this, that I think God really began to use me as a husband in my, in my wife's life, in my kids' lives, and in my city. So, so I want to encourage some of you men, if some of you are in a season right now where you just feel like God's killing you, he might not be killing you. He, he might just be killing the old you and, and bringing a new you into existence who he can really use in a, in a powerful way. See, I, I have three sons, and um, when each of those sons was born, I was thinking Genesis 2.15, Genesis 2.15. This boy was born, each of my boys were born into the world and I held them and I thought about this passage. My boy is called to cultivate and to guard, to go out into this world on a mission and, and be a cultivator and be a guardian. But, but men aren't doing all that great. I mean, everyone would agree, those who believe in God, those who don't believe in God would all agree that we, ha- we have a man problem on our hands, in our culture, in our city, that, that men aren't being very responsible and doing what they're called to do. I think the heart of the problem isn't isn't a responsibility problem. I think it's a power problem with men. The best way I know to explain this is is to tell you about about my car. um, In in high school, my junior year of high school, I got my first car, uh, Toyota Tercel. It was kind of a girl car, but I liked it. It was cool. And I loved this car. It was silver, and I had my football pads in the back of it, and the whole car just smelled like football. It was was awesome. should tell you about me in football. My, my freshman year of, of high school football, I was the worst player on the team by far. My coaches put me in to a grand total of seven plays the entire season, and they only put me in the game when it was crystal clear that my presence on the field would have no impact on the outcome of the game. Um, <laughs> put me in. I made two tackles that whole year, both by accident. I have no idea how I made them. And, and, and I was six feet tall and 120 pounds. So I, I had the body of a female supermodel. And then a helmet and, and, and shoulder pads. So I was, I was not a very intimidating presence. But this is a couple of years later now, and I've got my car, and I've got my football pads. And, um, and I, after practice, I, I head out to my car, um, and I put my key in the ignition to, to start the car, and I turn the, turn the key, and, and, and nothing happens. Like, the engine won't turn over. I keep turning the key, and nothing happens. Finally, I realize, oh, my battery's dead. And so, and so I, I ran down a guy who was driving by in a big truck, waved him down, and he came, and he had jumper cables, and he, he attached the cables to his battery and to my battery. And sure enough, a few minutes later, I, I go and I, I turn the key, and the car starts. Now, I think that's, that's the problem with a lot of men. I think a lot of men in our city, are, are, they, they want to be good husbands. They want to be good men. They want to be responsible. But they're sitting in the car, turning the key, and just nothing seems to be happening. And they don't realize that the problem is a power problem. They need power from outside of themselves to do what God has called them to do as men. That first husband was never meant to to, to be a man or to be a husband in his own strength based on his own resources. He was meant to rely upon God for the whole thing. I I have a friend named Ed and 
His mom used to use uh, this as a way to, to teaching her son responsibility, the nature of responsibility. She, she would say, Ed, this is what responsibility is. Responsibility is my response to his ability. My response to his ability. Now, women, you can use this too, but men, that's your responsibility as men. You're to respond to God's ability. And, and his ability is limitless. His ability to, to, to work through you and his ability to use you. See, men, men are always measuring themselves. I mean, you, you, you can't put two or three men together for more than one or two minutes, and very quickly the men are sizing themselves up, and they're kind of telling stories, kind of one-upping each other and, and, and measuring themselves. And this is where I have a great concern in speaking a message like this. Because some of you men could leave this room today inspired. And you go, man, I'm going to date my wife. And like you, you go this week and man, you just love the socks off your wife. And you take great care of her. And she's like, what? Like you need to go to that church more. This is great. Like, keep going. But then what happens the next week when maybe you don't perform as well? You don't do as good at it. And, 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 and then you kind of feel bad about yourself that week. The week you do well, you feel really good about yourself. The week you don't do well, you, you don't feel great about yourself. This is our problem as men is we tend to, to find our identity in what we do and how well we perform. And when we perform well, we feel well. When we don't perform well, we don't feel well. But that's not how God designed it. God did not design us to find our identity in, in how well we do at something. He designed our identity to us to find our identity in what he has to say about us and what the living God says about us as men. I, I've taken us to Genesis 2.15, a man's job description, but that's not a man's identity. And, and, and you've got to keep these two things separate. It's so, it's so important. Um, first, we, we needed to look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. Let's look at that right now. God has just created the world, and now he's giving his judgment on the world, his, his, his verdict on, on what the world is like and what he thinks about it. He's just created the man, and the man has yet to do a thing. He has yet to even lift a finger in the garden. And God says this, And God saw everything that he made, and behold... It was very good. God looks down at the man before he's even done anything, and he says, very good. I'm very pleased with what I've made. I, I approve of you. It's that identity, an identity that we get from God and God alone, that's meant to drive us in men, as men in everything that we do. You, you could sum up this book that I wrote. You could sum up this message today in one sentence. If you want to change a marriage, change the man and Jesus changes the man. See, man, I'm not telling you today just to like man up and be a better man. What I want you to do today is I want you to have an experience with Jesus. I want you to see and behold and experience more of Jesus and who he is and what he's done for you. And I want that to transform you from the inside out as a man. What did Jesus do for us? Jesus came to earth and, and Jesus took responsibility for what wasn't his fault. Jesus comes to earth and he takes responsibility for our sin, for our mess, for our brokenness, for all, all the horrible things that we have caused. He came and he took responsibility for that because of his love for us. It's, it's amazing what he's done. It's, it's, the, the word for this in the Bible is, is grace. There's nothing I get more excited about in life than grace. Like grace has been wrecking me and transforming my life and I love it. And this is how I've been thinking about grace is it's, it's unexpected, undeserved love that comes into our life and, and blindsides us and transforms us as men and as women. 
We, we are so used to, to, to doing relationships where, where it's all about what you deserve. I'm going to love you well if you deserve it. I'm going to, you know, we, we're so used to that, but God is just so different. His love is so different. It's, a, it's an unexpected love. You don't see it coming. It's an undeserved love. We haven't done anything to earn it. And listen, men, it, this is love from the real God that is available for the real you. Not a pretend you. Not a fake you that has it all together. The real you with all of your junk, with all of your sin, with all of your insecurities, with your whole story, with all of your imperfections. See, I've been a Christian for a while now, but I used to think that that God's love was available for some future version of me, that once I kind of got better, some future improved version of myself, then maybe God could could really love me. That's not how it works at all. His love is available only and exclusively for the real you. Grace only works with, with people who need it. It's love, men. It's for the real you. And you must get this because I want you to love your real wife. Not some pretend version of who you want your wife to be. Men, the message of this book is not called fix your wife. It's called date your wife. See, men, what if you could be the one person on the planet who doesn't try to fix your wife, but just loves her? I don't know your wife's story, but I imagine her story is a lot like my wife's story. We're, 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 we're growing up, you're just always facing someone trying to fix you, someone trying to improve you, someone trying to tweak you. What if you could be the one person that just loved your wife? Unconditional love. And it's only an environment of unconditional love that, that any real change actually happens in our lives. Don't fix your wife. Love your wife. Date your wife is what we're called to do as men. I, I, I don't have any secrets. People think, hey, you wrote this book, so man, you must have a bunch of great tips or secrets on this stuff. I don't, I don't have any secret. My only secret is I really believe God has given me a life and a wife that I don't deserve. I don't think I deserve the life that he's given me, and so I want to steward it well. And I don't think I deserve the wife he's given me. I really think I'm married way, way up, and I want to take great care of her. And my wife, men, your wife, that's God's daughter. That is God's daughter, and he's taken his daughter, and he's entrusted her to you. And he says, love her. Take great care of her. What a privilege. What a weighty responsibility. What, what an adventure that we're entrusted with. Man, I want you to know that, that God's grace is stronger than you think. God's grace is stronger than you think, and today you can have an experience with his grace that that can really change you, that can really change your marriage. I really believe that the most rebellious thing that you can do in today's culture, in today's world, is, is date your wife. Be a man who takes great care of your wife. Be a good husband for 60 years. Keep those vows. That's what other men are not doing. That's the thing that you can do that, that's radically countercultural here in Silicon Valley. I was with my friend James recently in Atlanta last month. James lives on the same street uh, that Martin Luther King Jr. was born and raised on. The house that Martin Luther King Jr. uh, lived in is there. And then right down the street is Ebenezer Baptist Church where Martin Luther King Jr. uh, preached and and, and pastored. And I was checking out the house and checking out the church and reading the plaques. And I was just thinking, man, God, how how did you use this man in such a mighty way? I mean, you took this one man. And through this one man, there was such a massive impact in, in our world. How did this happen? And it occurred to me, well, Well, that man had a dream. He had a dream. That's why God used him. Nothing big, nothing significant happens in our lives, happens in our churches, happens in our cities 
without a big dream. What I want you to do, man, is I want you to dream big for your marriage. Like get with God this weekend and just dream for your marriage and what God wants to do through it. And, and, and men, you need to have a bigger dream for your marriage than your wife has for your marriage. You need to have a bigger dream for your marriage than you have for your career. And, and, and don't just dream that your marriage would be good. Dream beyond that. Dream that God would use your marriage in a massive way to impact hundreds of people. Pray for that. Dream, dream, dream for that. And, and I don't care who you are or what you've done. I don't care who you are or what you've done or what your story is. Like, God can use you. His grace can invade your life in a fresh way, and, and he can give you a big dream, and he can use you, he can use your marriage in a way you never even dreamt. Like, I get so excited about this. Like, I think about this question. Like, you and I, we're in the same city. Man, I love I loved Silicon Valley. I love living here. I hope I live and die here. And I want to see Jesus continue to do amazing things here. And he's just getting started, I think. I'm so excited about what he's doing in our city. I'm so excited about what he's going to do. And I think about this question. What if every man in our city, every married man in our city, dated his wife? Like, do you know how that would impact and transform this city, like, forever? What if every married man dated his wife? Like, you, you didn't get to see the video. We're going to see a video, though, on, on, on sex trafficking. Do you know who invented sex trafficking? A man invented sex trafficking. A man is the one who started treating women horribly. But what if the men of the city were raised up and tried, started treating women really, really well? Imagine the kids growing up in the homes where, where a man dated their wife and, the, and, and sons and daughters got to see a man who took great care of a woman. Imagine how that would change our city. What I want you to do is, is respond to God's grace with faith, believe in it, and then dream big. Dream big about how, how God could use you and use your marriage. And write it down. It doesn't have to be a lot. A couple sentences, three, four sentences about what your dream is. And then you need to plan. Uh, a dream is not enough. We don't want just a bunch of dreamers walking around. It, you need to put a plan in place for how you're going to accomplish that dream. Men, those vows that you spoke on your wedding day, those aren't automatic. Those aren't magic. Those, those vows won't just keep themselves. You, you have to put a plan in place for how you're going to keep them. And so by telling you to put a plan in place, I'm just giving you common sense that, that most of us men were just never taught. You know, most of us men were just never taught by, by a dad or by a father figure or by a mentor that, that you needed to do, a pra do practical planning, put a plan in place for taking care of your wife. We were taught how to do that maybe in the business world. We were taught how to do that maybe for a hobby of ours. We were taught how to do that for some upcoming fishing trip with the guys, but we were not taught that we needed to do that for our marriage. So there's just two key components you need to put into a plan for your marriage. It's the air war and the ground war. Here's the air war. That's where you're looking at your marriage from the 30,000 foot level. You're really looking at your marriage in a one-year chunk and you're thinking, man, over the course of this one year, how can I take great care of my wife? So you, get, you just get some time away and you plan out your year and before you put anything in the calendar for your work or for your kids or for hobbies or anything else, you just schedule how you're going to take great care of your wife. Could be a couple trips that you're going to take. Um, could be like big, special, important days. Like I used to forget my anniversary all the time. I put that on the calendar now, so I don't do that anymore. Things like that, days that are really special to your wife, you put, you put that in the calendar. Then you also need a ground war. That's where you're looking at your marriage in a, in a, in a one-week chunk, and you're going, man, over the course of this week, and man, I know so many curveballs are going to come at us this week. There's going to be exhaustion and stress and, and bills, and someone's going to get hurt and have to go, go off to the hospital, and there's just going to be chaos. How, over the course of this week, can I take great care of my wife? You know, so for us, it's, it involves a weekly date night. Uh, for us, it involves me just sort of watching my wife's 
face and kind of seeing how she's doing and kind of going, you know, again, we have three young kids at home and, and going, man, how can I maybe take something off of her plate in order to like, you know, I'll watch the kids for a bit so she can go out, go for a run, go get some coffee, whatever she needs to do, get some, get some alone time. Like, man, do you realize that the woman you married is, is not the same woman now? I've been married nine years. When I married my wife, like, she didn't need alone time because that's just, she was single and that's all she had, you know, and just had me. She didn't have kids. Now with all these kids, like, alone time is what she needs. That's what fills up her tank. So be a student of your wife and, and look at what she needs as the marriage goes by. And, and make it fun. Man, I have some, you know, we're in engineer land here in Silicon Valley and I have some guys in my church that have, like, shown up with 10-page Excel reports on, like, how they're going to date their wife. And they've, like, they've showed up and they've given it to their wife, like, hey, here's my plan. I'm like, you're stupid. There's no romance in that. No wonder she hated it. Like, she's not a project. She's your wife. So don't do that. Just make it, make it simple. One piece of paper. I don't know. Figure out your plan. But don't. She's not a project. Listen, I, I used to think, I used to think that I was a really good guy. And then I got married. And I realized, man, I'm, I'm kind of a jerk. Man, I'm pretty selfish. And I had a couple kids and realized, man, I'm, I'm really selfish. See, marriage, marriage exposes you. It it, it brings out the real you. And that's how God designed it. God made it that way. God God, God puts us into marriage so that that we would really begin to understand his grace in in a whole new way and finally live by it and finally receive it. See, I have a cemetery, I don't know, three, four minute walk from my house and I walk up there a lot. There are these two gravestones, uh, Fred and Edna. They're right next to each other. Fred and Edna died many years ago, a married couple, and they died 38 years apart from each other. And I sit there and I just think about that, and I think about my own marriage, and I think about this, this woman that God's entrusted to me, who I love, and man, I love my wife. I'm in love with her. She's my best friend, and I'm going to keep my vows come hell or high water. I'm going to keep them by the grace and strength of Jesus, and I want to take great care of her until she meets her Lord on that day. And I don't know how long we've got. Like, man, you don't know when God's going to take your wife. You don't know when God's going to take you. But, but you've got this mission on your hands. It's a life or death mission. And in a world full of broken vows, you, by the grace and strength of Jesus Christ, can be a man who, who keeps your vows in a world full of broken vows and, and shows this world and shows this city something very different. God's grace is stronger than you think. I know some of you are sitting here right now and you think none of this applies to me because you don't know my story, Mr. Preacher Man. You don't know what, what I've been through. You don't know what our marriage has been through. I'm just going to tell you, I don't know your story, but I'm going to tell you God's grace is stronger than you think. God's grace is stronger than you think and don't you dare undersell God's ability to use you in this city. Grace is the strongest thing in the world. Grace is stronger than sin. Grace is stronger than regret. Jesus, his resurrection power is stronger than death and stronger than the grave. And he can use you. See, I, I think God looks at a, at a room like this. I think he looks at a room like this. I think he looks at the men of this room. And I think he sees the real you. And I think he sees this, this real and broken you. He, see, he sees your brokenness. He sees your sin. He sees your story. He sees your wounds. He sees all of your fears. He sees your excuses. He sees your limitations. He sees the things that you don't let anybody else see. And I think he says, perfect! Perfect! I can work with these men. This, do you know what God's best at? 
He's best at taking imperfect, broken people and using them. He's best at taking a mess and and redeeming it and turning it into something beautiful. Listen, things do not have to stay the way they are in your life, in your marriage, in your church, in this city. Today, Jesus can come and he can do something new. And men, I want you to be men who respond to that message of grace with faith, with a big dream, and with a plan for, for going at it for the long haul. Next 50, 60, 70 years, how are you going to do it? Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for South Bay Church. Thank you for the great work that you're doing here. And I want to pray right now just specifically for the men here. I pray that you would be doing, even right now as I'm praying, through the power of your Holy Spirit, a fresh, grace-soaked, big dream work in the men here. God, use us as men. Let us be, be real men in a, in a world full of fake men. Let us be real men who enjoy your grace and, and who take great care of our wives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.